Hello and welcome to episode 63 of the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. I am Patrick Macias, the co-author of the new book, The Essential Anime Guide. And I'm Matt Alt, the author singular of Pure Invention, How Japan Made the Modern World, and its associated newsletter at blog.pureinventionbook.com. Please check it out. But in the meantime, I'd like to check you out, Patrick. What's going on in the wide world of Japanese pop culture today? Well, a lot of people have the year 1973 on the brain right now, and that's because of one reason, because this is the 50th anniversary of Godzilla versus Megalon, Matt. As everyone knows, it's a national holiday here in Japan. The ultimate battle, Godzilla versus Megalon. It's funny because it's one of my favorite Godzilla movies. Just like unironically, it's one of my favorite Godzilla movies. And every time I say that to people here in Japan who are actually raised on Godzilla, you know, from birth as you are in, in Japan. They flip over the table and go, get out of here. Get out well, no, of here. No, no, it's actually, it, it's more like, no, they're not like that. You know, Japanese people just generally don't do that. They don't like, like Americans would. It's almost like, they're like, oh, I'm so sorry. Like it's, it's like, you must not have had better Godzilla movies. It's like a death in the family or something yeah, well, like no, that. No, I mean. I mean, it's 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 really and I you know superficially I, I can understand why people might think it's kind of a silly movie but we've discussed this before I think it's very forward looking forward thinking ahead of its time it comes up again and again and again there's no escaping Godzilla versus Megalon and this year doubly so because on November third of this year, uh, there's going to be a short film, an all-new short film called Godzilla vs. Megalon that's going to debut at the Godzilla Fest event there in Hibiya, Tokyo. And then it's going to go online for like two weeks until Toha goes bananas and like bans it and pretends it never happened. I, I'm really curious, like why, I mean, I guess it's the 50th anniversary is the why. And I have to say, I was I was pleased to see that the very first image in the, uh, in, in the trailer is of a toga, <laughs> you know, from the Seatopians, like they're still wearing those togas. It's 50 years later. I mean, the Seatopians are back, Matt, and they're madder than ever. But there's several things that are missing from this teaser trailer that have certainly piqued my interest. One, there's no Jet Jaguar. Okay. Hmm. And this is very mysterious because Godzilla's robot buddy, Jet Jaguar, they did make an all new suit for him that's going to debut at the Godzilla Fest. There is some Jet Jaguar on the menu, but will there be Jet Jaguar in this new Godzilla short? And Jet Jaguar, of course, he got his own sort of show in Godzilla SP, that animated show that came out on Netflix and was sort of powered up in many different ways. But I'm assuming if he shows up in this, it's going to be more along the lines of the traditional Jet Jaguar that we know and love, the 50-year-old Jet Jaguar that we know and love. Not to be confused with any ultra-sized men of various distinctions. Uh, he's just his own totally original thing, 100%, with that Jack Nicholson grin. Also, will Antonio, the emperor of Cetopia, be returning in this short? When we last saw him, it was 1973. He was being played by Robert Dunham, who kind of looked like Sean Connery and Zardoz a little bit, like he got <laughs> lost somewhere. Yes. He walked through the tabernacle and straight to Seatopia. I don't mean to sound like kind of creepy or anything, but I was kind of relieved to see that in the preview. It seems to be a woman in the toga, a young woman wearing the toga and not a very hairy middle-aged man, <laughs> which is what no offense to Robert Dunham and no offense if hairy middle-aged men are your thing, but uh, no shame in that game. But uh, uh, I was like, oh wow! Like there's a there's a toga that covers the whole body. This is interesting. He was sort of wearing like a, a like a unitard, like a sling. It was kind of a strange toga. I don't know. When the teaser trailer debuted online a few days ago, I heard this like chanting growing in the distance. It was like louder and louder, going toga, toga, toga. 
It's always a toga party down in Zootopia. I wonder... Well, you know, the, this is the thing. If you recall the very last lines of, of Godzilla versus Megalon, or like, you know, and we'll warn the scientists to be more careful in future and let Zootopia rest in peace. So I guess it's been there this whole time. It's just they didn't destroy Zootopia. Well, this is in continuity. This looks like the Zootopians are back. Megalon is back, all slightly redesigned. And it's Godzilla Jr. It's a grown-up Godzilla Jr. from Godzilla versus Destroya. This is not a retcon. Is it canon? This is not apocrypha, Matt. This is the real deal right here. This is actually what's happening right now as we speak. This is as real as it gets. I understand. Just actually rewind here a second. So this is going to be showing at the Godzilla Fest where, when, who, what, when, where, how? Give, give us the deets on that. Well, the Godzilla Fest is an annual event they do in Hibiya, Tokyo, in the shadow of the, I guess, the Toho Entertainment Complex there. And they sell a bunch of tchotchkes. They sell a bunch of stuff. There's a lot of announcements of new products for merchandising. That's where the real money from the movie is made. Like last year, the theme was Godzilla versus Gigan because it was the 50th anniversary right. of that. And this year, it's a Megalon. They built a new Jet Jaguar suit. And I guess this year, they're really going to be hyped up because a few days later, Godzilla Minus One, the new Godzilla movie opens. Well, it does. And then don't forget that a few days after that, or a few days before that, the Apple Plus Godzilla series, Godzilla whatever is, I actually, that's not the title i just can't remember it is starting to stream as well i refuse to admit that the legendary monsterverse even exists are you exhausted and and confused what was the word they were using about bob Iger and and the disney this is there was variety magazine was reporting that disney's ceo is exhausted and cons- <laughs> what is it what was it you actually confused angered upset i don't know <laughs> he was he, he was, was an ex- adjective exhausted by the string of of disney failures that have been coming out recently and i know this is a, a, a pet of yours but i just you know, I don't want you to get exhausted whenever I bring up the word Godzilla just because it stars a bunch of American people and not Japanese. There's going to be a metric shit ton of Godzilla over the next few months. So this is definitely part of the of the puzzle. Everyone's going to have to take a bite, I guess, as they Wait say. Wait a second. You mean they're making merchandise from these Godzilla films? Wow, that's new. That's completely shocking. This is what's so funny is that in going back and researching the very first like three Godzilla movies, there was nothing. Yeah. There was like a movie novelization and some Kaduta cards. But then a couple years later, I guess, yeah, I guess because the first movie comes out in 54, right? And the second one, was it 50? 55. 55, right? And then we don't see the first like truly awesome piece of Godzilla merchandise until Marusan puts out that that tin plate like smoke exhaling remote controlled Godzilla toy that is, you know what I'm talking about, right? I know which one you're talking it's, about. It's amazing. It's like it's like the, the pinnacle of tin plate toys. And there's a whole bunch in that series after Marusan went under. So I guess they must have put that out around 60 early 60 60 66 i don't think there was any like well there's the model kit i know there was the marasan model kit that they kind of yeah the marasan model kit which looks yes exactly and then there's also the because the, the, the vinyl of godzilla didn't actually come out until after the ultra kaiju came out i don't believe which is bizarre because you would think the one thing they could figure out is like you know you have like no money over here and then you have this character that's yes. being seen by millions of people around the world no no actually i have the inside scoop on this i actually have the inside 
inside scoop on this because I interviewed Saburo Ishizuki, a former executive at Marasan and and then later at Bullmark as well, uh, when I was doing interviews for Pure Invention. And he said that the then president of Marasan was like, no kid wants to actually play with Godzilla. They want like a, you know, they need a toy that has some play value in it. They buy the toy because of the play value. And Ishizuki-san was like, no, I think they actually want just the character. And so they compromised and he just wanted to make a Godzilla figure from the get-go, but they made him make it a tin walking toy because they said, you know, no kid would buy a Godzilla that just stands there and doesn't do anything. So uh, Ishizuki was right. Marasan was wrong. Marasan went into business. And then the guy who didn't sign the Beatles walked into the bar and they <laughs> exactly. got drunk together. <laughs> exactly. It's like, yeah, what? The Beatles? Who wants these guys? I don't, I don't see a future for these guys. But uh, as we know, Ishizuki-san went on to kind of pioneer action figures, which is something that he really does not get enough credit for. But I give him credit every time I hear it with the Ultra figures and then the Godzilla vinyls. And, and here we are in the modern era, surrounded by effigies of all sorts of the characters that we so love and crave. Yeah, but the numbers 1973 weigh heavy on my conscience this time. And I think it's time to move into the main topic of yes. the episode, which is 2023 is 1973. Well, it's certainly starting to look like it. I think we, as we were discussing earlier, the focus of this episode is going to be about something that doesn't sound like it has much to do with what we usually talk about in here, which is pop culture and toys, and sometimes toys and pop culture, and then also pizza. But uh, it does. And that is in October of 1973, something happened that triggered what is known as the oil shock. And it's known around the world as like the kind of global energy crisis. Uh, in Japan, they call it oil shoku. And it resulted in a spike in prices across the board of all sorts of products, and also the inputs of those products, because the yen really strengthened against the dollar, a bunch of economic stuff going on here. And the oil shock itself was triggered by a war in the Middle East, the Yom Kippur War, when Egypt and several other Arab states, I think Syria was involved as well, attacked Israel as a a kind of, I don't know if it was retaliation. I'm not exactly a uh, a Middle Eastern scholar, but this was a follow-on from the Six-Day War in which uh, Israel took uh, like Golan Heights and Sinai Peninsula from, from Egypt in 1967. Anyway, Egypt attacks, Israel gets in this big war, and there's just a huge mess in the Middle East as uh, the Arab states rush to support the Arab side, Israel is fighting back, and it causes oil prices. OPEC decides to kind of restrict the flow of oil into the marketplace, spiking the prices of it and causing like a jump in the price of fuel, gasoline, all of like all of these other sorted products and stuff. And that oil crisis, political though it was, humanitarian crisis though it was, also had a massive impact on Japanese pop culture, which nobody really realized until years later looking back. And 1973, October of 1973, was the moment when all of these dominoes started to fall. So let's talk oil shock. Yeah, I found this old New York Times article from 1974, which is about like daily life in Shizuoka, Japan, and how it was directly affected by the oil shock. The oil crisis has caused citizens of Shizuoka to buy fewer toys for their children, to eat less cake, to wear less expensive clothes, and to do without heat in their homes. The oil crisis caused some shortages of oil, gasoline, and kerosene a couple of months ago, but they have gone. What remains is a tremendous rise in cost of everything. 
A city official said that prices had gone up 50 to 100% over four months. Mamma mia, that's a big hit in the world. Oh, no, it was a big deal. It was a big deal. There were like riots over like toilet paper. There was a, That was a big thing that happened in, I believe it was October, November of 73 in Japan, where people just thought they wouldn't be able to get like basic staples like that. And like people were injured. There were like, there were people rushing. And, you know, Japan is now, it's, it's like established. It's an advanced country. It's even in its like post-industrial industrial uh, advanced country phase. But this was like 1973 was right after Japan had kind of established itself as a as a major economy. It was actually the second largest economy in the world at the time. But, but like just 10 years before that, think about this, like 30 years before that, Japan had been in the middle of World War II. Like 25 years before that, Japan had been destroyed, like every city had been destroyed. And so in that short period up to 1973, Japan had rebuilt, but like memories of this like horrific, you know, uh, you know, mass destruction destruction uh, in, in this, in, what happened during the war were fresh in everybody's minds. So when the oil prices rose and prices of everything rose, people just freaked out. They completely freaked out on the ground. And they also started to freak out in companies, toy companies, content production companies. I have a fun quote here from that New York Times article about uh, Shizuoka. And it says here, years ago, the operator of a toy store in the United States said, in the middle of a recession, that no matter how bad things got, parents kept on buying toys for their children. The operator of a toy shop in Japan was asked how business was. The toy industry was the first victim of the oil crisis, he said, because so many Japanese toys are made of plastic. The prices have gotten so high that our customers are not buying. The cost of living has gotten so bad that people have even stopped buying toys. That's horrifying. My God, national nightmare. Uh, in Japan, it really is a national nightmare. One of the first casualties of this was uh, Barbie. Barbie had been produced in Japan since the uh, 60s. And I wrote about this in my newsletter. Barbie was actually arguably invented in Japan or came to life in Japan, even though she's uh, like kind of dreamed up by uh, Mattel. And they produced Barbie dolls in Japan for many years until the oil shock made prices rise so much that they moved the entire production out of Japan and into, I believe, Korea, Taiwan, places like that. So Japan lost Barbie at this time. It was like a, a big moment. And that kind of, you know, the, the the prices, the price rising really reverberated throughout the entire toy industry. I have a couple other examples that might surprise you of toy lines that we know and love today that got really, their directions were really changed by Old Shock. Are there any trigger warnings you should make me aware of before we go any further? Trigger warnings? For Micro Man? Let me, let, let me ask you this, Patrick. Let me ask you something. So 1973, Name some toy lines that you can think of that were like a big deal in 1973. Can you think of any? 73, man, that's kind of before the whole Chogokin boom, isn't it? It's around the time of that. Yeah, Bandai was definitely doing their thing. The Jumbo Machinder line. Toys made out of vinyl. I know Marusan was doing a lot of stuff. Yeah. Uh, Popey, I guess, had like a lot of their kaiju and stuff like that out there in the market. So there were a lot of cool toys back then. Well, here's one that you might know. Uh, Takara. Takara had a series called Henshin Cyborg. Do you know? Do you know? Oh, I know Henshin Cyborg. Yeah, Henshin Cyborg toys are really cool. They're like Takara's take on the, uh, is it Hasbro, I guess it was? The 12-inch G.I. Joe dolls, which were popular in the States in the 1960s and imported to Japan in the late 60s as well. But Japan wasn't really as big on like U.S. military toys as as Americans were. Go figure. So instead, they kind of used the same molds and shot them with uh, translucent 
translucent plastic and made these kind of robotic looking figures they called henchin cyborg 12 inches tall translucent skin robot parts on the inside and the cool things about those is you could buy little costumes off the rack yes. for like popular anime and tokusatsu characters now anybody who knows anything about uh japanese toys patrick knows that the henchin cyborg line evolved over many iterations to actually become what we know as the transformers today but the first step in that change was known as microman and you know microman right Exactly. And what are they? They're like little tiny scaled down versions of the Henshin cyborg figures, are they not? You might know them best as the Micronauts. Exactly. So you have these little translucent three and three quarter figures that look pretty much just like the Henshin cyborg, except what? There's a lot less plastic in them. So like what we think of as, what we were thinking of is like, oh wow, this is a, a stylistic choice, was actually driven in huge measure by the oil shock, by the rise in cost of everything like petrochemical related. So obviously, it's a lot easier to make a three and three quarter plastic figure inch figure than it is to make a 12 inch one. I mean, you're using probably a third the amount of material in there. I thought that was just so I could put it in my pocket and sneak it into class. And here you thought it was about selling the play sets. I mean, it's kind of funny because there's a ton of plastic in some of those play sets too. What is that giant? There's like that giant like base. With Biodomes? Little, I don't know what they're yeah, called. You know, there's like a million of I mean, I love Microman. I love Micronauts. I love... Uh, Micronauts the, brought to the U.S. by Marty Abrams of Mego, but the Henshin Cyborg to Micronaut, Microman transition is one of the now looking back kind of obvious impacts of the oil crisis on the toy industry. And I have others, but I want to hear. I want to hear if you have any examples. Oh well, I know as like a vinyl collector, the years like seventy three to like seventy six are pretty bleak ones because I guess the record industry all around the world, including Japan switched over to like cheaper, thinner, recycled vinyl. Oh, wow. There's tales of people finding like little bits of like previous record labels ground into the quote new vinyl. So a lot of record collectors really hate pressings done during those years. And I guess there were a lot of production delays. A lot of records didn't get released until later. Plants were not able to produce enough. So that's one of those things. So if you do buy records from around that era, you will find that some of them because it's like bend really easily. You can see through them. It's pretty ridiculous. Like flexi discs almost. Well, 73 was on the tail end of what's known as like the second kaiju boom the first one being in the 60s and my impression is that was kind of put to an end real quick by oil shock not just on the toy front but also like on the production of the shows front is that correct yeah during those years it was pretty tough to be a guy who made tokusatsu stuff live action superhero shows i mean i guess on two fronts it was the best of times it was the worst of times in 75 that's when go ranger the forerunner of the right. power rangers debuts and that was a big hit and that didn't really seem to have any production problems but meanwhile, over at Rival Studios, Subaraya Productions, uh, they had Ultraman Leo, which started out really awesome. Like the first two episodes of Ultraman Leo are like incredible special effects, great action. But then gradually the production gets cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And then around, I guess, episode 40, they kill off very unceremoniously <laughs> all of like the Science Patrol character guys. Mac. It's called Mac. Like monster attacking crew. Not to be confused with the two live crew. Those guys came later. This is the monster attacking crew. Yeah, they kill them all. What What's happened, Patrick? They dead. And so it just becomes like an even cheaper monster of the week show. I guess they ground up the Mac guys to make oil right. so that they could like make micro men with or something. I don't really know what happened. No, but. it's it's funny because like you could tell that early on 
around that the hopes were super high for that show. And now it's considered sort of like a failed series or like a dud. It's like half a good Ultra show. Ultra, Ultraman Leo basically ends up with a whimper. And then there's like really nothing going on for, for like a good couple of years there. Go Ranger to me, which is the kind of template for all of the later Power Rangers shows, except for the fact it doesn't have a giant robot in it. My impression is that would have been cheaper to produce than like a giant kaiju series. Because you remember, it's just five people in suits. In a gravel pit. In a gravel pit. So this is where the gravel pits start coming in, right? Like, so oil shock is is starting to like affect even like the, the production of Japanese like pop culture in this way. Yeah, I guess like the big loser here was Godzilla, the king of the monsters. Even he couldn't get enough oil together to continue his film series. So the last Godzilla film of like the classic Showa era is Terror of Mecha Godzilla in 1975. And it didn't do very well at the box office. And they probably did the numbers. They said, on second thought, let's just not make any Godzilla movies for a while and save some money. Isn't Mecha Godzilla petroleum powered? Isn't he like diesel or something? Is that why they couldn't afford to run him for another sequel? So Godzilla's off the pop cultural map entirely until 1984. And for Ultraman, he's like not even around until 1979 when he comes back as an anime character yes. in The Ultraman. The Ultraman. So I guess during that gap when Tokusatsu production like went to like a standstill, that's kind of when anime came in and sort of took over the center stage. Yes. Which is ironic because you'd think a lot of petroleum products are used in like making of those acetate sheets and like the oil-based paints and things like that. But I guess it's still, whatever the fa- whatever the case is, it's still cheaper than producing, building a, a, a miniature city that is then blown up every single week over and over again <laughs> when you're making a tokusatsu, like an Ultraman TV series. Myth of Sisyphus style, yeah. Well, to- on the toy front, back on the toy front, another toy line that kind of suffered during this period was the Jumbo Machinder series. The Jumbo Machinder toys, which are these two foot tall, 60 centimeter, hollow polyethylene plastic, the same material used to make shampoo bottles. That started with Mazinger Z in 1970. It was one or two. It, it actually predates the Chogokin series of diecast uh, robot toys. But there's a time when the Jumbo Machinders, which are jumbo, they, they need to be. They are. They just are. It's like one of the fundamental unbreakable laws of the universe suddenly shrunk down. Uh, and there was a period when they were only producing kind of like half-sized machinders called super machinders. The Kyodine, Skyzel, and Groundzel, and like there's a bunch of other ones in that kind of mini size that look awesome, but they're just not quite big enough. Do the jumbo machinders discriminate against the super machinders? I, you know, I discriminate against super machinders because they cost exactly the same as the big ones, and I don't. <laughs> You only get like half size. They're really actually really expensive now. That Skyzel and Granzel one, they're they're a little over half size, but whatever the case is, that was another casualty. But perhaps the biggest casualty uh, on that toy kind of pop cultural front is a certain company that you may have heard of by the name of Nintendo. Have you ever heard of them, Patrick? I've heard of them before. Isn't that where I could play Popeye and other video games like that? So in 1973, Nintendo wasn't the company that we know and love today. They'd, they'd kind of limped through the 60s making all sorts of really cheap toys. And like they had a love hotel for a while and like a bunch of other weird stuff. And they were sort of like struggling 
struggling to find their identity. You know, they were trying to evolve away from being a purveyor of traditional Hanafuda playing cards. My brain can't digest these words together. Nintendo Love Hotel. So in the 60s, and this is we're off we're we're off topic, Patrick. We're off topic. Stop me if you've heard this one before, but this is a totally true story. In the 60s, Nintendo experimented with all sorts of products that you would like never associate with them today. Like they made like instant rice and they made like instant noodles and they made like a like a baby strollers. And then at one point, President uh, Hiroshi Yamauchi, who ran Nintendo from, uh, I believe it's like the the mid, the, the, the early 50s all the way up to the 90s, he got it in his head to purchase a taxi service. And then he also purchased a hotel. And these two things worked in concert because when, you know, late at night, when you get in your car and be like with your hostess girlfriend or whatever, hey, can you take me to a hotel? And the taxi service would take you to the hotel they were affiliated with, which turned out to be this one in Nintendo is running. Nintendo very much does not like people talking about this era in its history. If it's true, it's 100% true. It's documented. We're not in danger of being sued or anything. But for a brief shining moment there in the 60s, Nintendo did operate a by-the-hour love hotel in Kyoto. Oh, to have stayed there. I don't think there was much in the way of characters back then other than the shady characters who ran the place. Other than the guy in the trench coat like just knocking on the doors and running down the hallways. (laughs) You just don't want to be in the janitor staff at one of those places, let me tell you. But it's kind of a symbol of how Nintendo was just struggling to find itself. And in 1973, it seemed that it kind of had. By this point, they had this guy named Gunpei Yokoi working on their staff. And Gunpei Yokoi is a kind of, you know, savant toy maker. Like he didn't start out wanting to be a toy maker or anything like that, but he got hired by Nintendo to kind of repair machines and stuff. And turned out he had a knack for coming up with all sorts of playthings, one of which was a light gun. And back in the early 70s, like we know light guns is the ones that were packaged with the Nintendo entertainment system, you know, in the 80s when we were kids, duck hunt, all of that kind of stuff. Same exact technology. But when it, he first invented it, it was too complicated to kind of use in the home. So Nintendo like struck on this idea of making these like it was called laser clay and this was like a virtual clay pigeon shooting range and they actually like modified real shotguns like over under shotguns uh with no you know they took the firing mechanisms out and put the light gun mechanisms in and they would buy up old bowling alleys that were about to go out of business and convert them into laser clay alleys and you'd go in there with these like shotguns and you'd shoot laser you know you'd use the the light gun there's actually no lasers involved in it all it's just like flashing lights and you'd shoot clay pigeons up on the wall and nintendo went all in on this they actually hired sunny chiba to be their pitch man this and there's an amazing photo it's like laser clay at the top with sunny chiba and a double-barreled shotgun like it looks like a cut from a movie that you wish existed he's like he's wearing this like sweater vest it's like really odd but he's got this like determined expression on his face and uh he was their pitch man and it was looking like wow this is like a new form of entertainment that nintendo had pioneered yeah i was gonna say how could this go wrong how could this go wrong you got sunny chiba you have you have sunny chiba the shotgun you have lasers or not lasers you have like lights flashing you have a love hotel that's open 24 well they've been out they're out of the love hotel business by this point and they're, they're like and they're they're full in to the Sunny Chiba uh, light shotgun experience, you know, as one does when one has Sunny Chiba to, to help them promote this kind of thing. But they were starting to open these things in 73, just as oil shock hit. And they had a hit on their hands at first, 
And then when prices started rising, people just stopped going out altogether. It's It was almost like a, a kind of preview of what would happen in the coronavirus, you know, COVID-19 era when everybody just stayed at home. And they had so much invested in these places and they didn't have a lot of like margin for error, so to speak. And so when people stopped going out and stopped going to these places, they, they just, they lost all their money. They had to shut them down. And so Sonny Chiba couldn't even save them. And that's in Nintendo's records, like Oil shock is cited as the cause for why they shut all these places down. So if the oil shock never happened, there'd be like a clay pigeon like light gun game on top of the Parco building instead of the Nintendo store. And Ultraman Leo would have ended with the Mac team being alive. Think about this. Think about this alternate future that somebody's living in where Sonny Chiba's like shooting, you know, a flashlight shotgun. The Mac team is still like Mackin. Jumbo Machinders are still Jumbo. Henshin Cyborg is getting bigger and bigger. There's like a doppelganger universe where all of these things are happening there but for the grace of god go i but yeah so these were these are real examples of things of of how the oil shock kind of transformed japanese culture and transformed society in a lot of ways too so it's uh you know an interesting example of how these geopolitical events can have these kind of butterfly effects these ripple effects that can change you know things that are remarkably close to us even though they're happening really far away it sounds really stressful so the good news is it could never happen again though right god yeah, yeah, that's the problem, isn't it? You know, the say, you know, the more things change, the more they stay the same. So, so let's pray that 2023 isn't 1973, and that we've all learned our lessons, evolving as a society and a species. And let Zootopia rest in peace. That's the moral of the story. That is the moral of the story. I've been in a toga the entire time we've been recording this. I'm going to take it off and hang it in the closet. I never wash it. I just leave it in the closet. I've been wearing it on and off since 1973. Um, it's gotten some interesting colors and smells to it, but. Uh, uh, I like to keep it that way. So I'm going to put the Togo away until the next time we need it, which I guess is 50 years from now. The 100th anniversary of Godzilla versus Megalon. Exactly. The, yeah, the 2073 is 1973. But all the people in the future listening to this, I demand that somebody take up this podcast and start doing exactly what we're doing except 100 years from now. If you do that, I promise. Good things will happen to you. What you're about to see is a transportation system for the Micronauts. These are rocket tubes. The electric air power terminal lets you blast up, down, forward, and back again. But that's not all. You can build a space elevator or any other layout you can dream up. Even run it in the dark. Rocket tubes from the world of the Micronauts. Assembly required by Mego. So thank you everyone for listening to the Pure Tokyo Scope podcast. Thanks for your support. We really appreciate it. We do it every week just for you. Yes, we do. Catch you next week. Same, same Pat time, same Matt channel. Check out next time. Bye. Bye.